What's good, what's good, what's good, fam? Welcome back to Reimagining Youth Work, the podcast. You are about to listen to the final episode of season one. I have learned a lot this season about how to do a podcast, about how to engage. Thank you for those who have been listening avidly, who have been supporting the work, sharing, subscribing, etc. I can't wait to bring you a great, amazing season two, utilizing everything that I've learned this season. You're about to hear an interview between myself and Dr. David Stovall. So I have to tell you right now that uh, Dr. David Stovall is huge in my eyes. I'm a huge fan of him, his work. Um, I remember hearing him speak uh, for the first time at AERA and really seeing um, the, the authenticity that he brought to the table. Um, he's a real dude. Um, really seeing how much he cares about community and how much he really leveraged um, the resources of the university of uh, being a faculty member inside of the community in Chicago. And we talk a lot about that. So please hear him talk about how he leverages that, um, that privilege that he has in the academy to, to, to utilize that on the behalf of, of, of raced and marginalized folks in Chicago communities. Uh, please listen to how he grassroots organizes inside of communities around schools and education. And in particular, listen to what he has to say about the fact that philanthropy and nonprofits, at least ones who are larger and members of the nonprofit industrial complex, don't show up for schools um, in his community. He talks about the importance of grassroots nonprofits who come together to support that. Lots of gems being dropped here. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Looking forward to it. Let's get into it. This is Tori Weaston Certain, and you are listening to Reimagining Youth Work. What's good, what's good, fam? Today I have Dr. David Stovall on the podcast. This is about to be everything, so strap up, get ready. He's a professor of African American Studies and Criminology, Law and Justice at the University of Illinois at Chicago. His scholarship investigates three areas, critical race theory, the relationship between housing and education, and the intersection of race, place, and school. In the attempt to bring theory to action, and this is what's really important for us, he works with community organizations and schools to address issues of equity, justice, and abolishing the school prison, school to prison nexus. Welcome, Dr. David Stovall. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks so much again for having me on. Truly appreciate it. No, I appreciate you being here. Uh, I was saying before we even started recording that I'm super excited to have you on. I respect your work. I respect what you do. And I really respect the fact that as a higher ed person, you've been in community, in schools, mm -hmm. doing work. So, you know, as a prominent scholar, you work in the academy and it's all amazing. Tell me, though, more about or tell us more about the work that you've been doing in schools and in community. Well, the thing for me has always been like when I was in graduate school, it was always this kind of moment around. All right. You know, people are talking about this. People are studying this. And the question I was always asking is like, to what end, right? And this thing around, really for me, the operative question was always why and for what, right? So this thing around like, so, you know, you got hella work on it, hella people talking about it in interesting ways, 
interesting to some people, right? right? Mm-hmm. Largely only folks in the academy. And to me, saying like, okay, well, we got all this work. Research can be used to improve conditions if we allow it to. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm always I was always asking the question like, where could that where could that happen, and why aren't people doing more of it? Because I would see I saw some hints of people doing it, right. and then asking this kind of question, okay, well, why are folks doing more of this work? So for me, it was always all right. If I'm going to continue on, then I'm going to ask this operative question, right? Why? And the, my uh, answer was because the academy has historically been used to isolate um, and marginalize members of communities communities of color. Mm-hmm. It's been used to extract from them, and it's been used in a broader colonial project of white supremacy, right? So this thing around that was the why, right? So to do something different, and then for what? And the for what? The answer to the for what was if I don't do this then I will be validating the argument of more the same. Right. So this was this, this was the, that was my consciousness or critical consciousness saying we can't do research for the sake of research, right? Yeah. If folks are out here dying, if folks are out here suffering and at any given moment that could be me, then what am I doing to contribute to this thing that I know to be real and to be happening? And how am I contributing to the interruption abolishment and building of something new. So that was the way that I started to think about that. And then I was already doing work in schools uh, as an undergrad, actually. And then just kind of continuing that and saying, all right, well, look, what are the ways that we can think about this? Because it was always the good teachers that I had weren't really about the orthodoxy of the school, Mm. right? They were always like, all right, look, the the school stuff, I that's more rules and regulations. Right. That's not really demonstrating any type of learning. So what would it mean to engage in these demonstration projects of learning? Right. So that that always stuck with me and saying, okay, how can I join up and link up with folks who are already doing this? And then with the hope of our work strengthening each other. So yeah. talking about it from a research perspective, but saying, the research community historically has not included these things. And then from the community perspective saying, if you are coming here, then you need to be responsible right. given the history that higher ed has had in our community. Mm-hmm. So that was the way in which I started to think about it and then to just kind of further the approach. Yeah. And so you ended up teaching social studies mm-hmm. in, a, in yeah. a school in Chicago. Yeah. Talk. Yeah, talk about that experience and talk about the difference between like stepping on a higher ed campus and uh, then teaching, you know. Yeah, K-12 teaching, the thing that I always appreciate about K-12 teaching, young bloods don't give a shit that you have a PhD, right? (laughs) They do not care about that, right? They're just like, look, bro, you out here, we out here, what you going to do, right? And that thing around, and I always appreciated that because it gets you off this high horse, it gets you away from thinking about something else other than yourself that you only believe about yourself yes. <laughs> and this whole thing around, okay, what, what are we really trying to do here? And it's not about coming from on high down to the valley, but it's really around saying, no, we always been in the valley and now what are we willing to do? So 
the when we um in this book that I wrote called Born Out of Struggle, mm-hmm. it was literally I was brought to that community event by way of some folks that I had known through other work. Mm-hmm. Right. So there was a 19 day hunger strike to demand quality education in a neighborhood. And I actually went to undergrad with one of the hunger strikers. Oh, wow. And I had also um, went to, I was doing community work with another one of the hunger strikers. So it was like, all right, this is something. And after the hunger strike ended, they called me back and was like, okay, look, if we're going to do this type of work, then what is the responsibility of university folks and the broader university to this space in a way that's accountable, right? So it's not just this thing around saying you're going to do it and not following through. Right. So for, for us, me and another uh, comrade named Rico Gutstein, we were like, all right, look, let's kick this up a bit. Let's write in the proposal for the school that we'll teach but we'll flip it. So, you know, you got all these kind of uh, college, um, you know, you, a lot of programs now you have these early college programs yes. where young folks can get early college credit. Right. We were like, all right, look, we can, we have a dormant system at our university where nobody really uses those mm. courses. Mm-hmm. It was like, so we already got unit numbers for, we already got a place for us. Like, well, look, let's talk to one of these folks let's enroll everybody in the class. Get it. So, so we enrolled everybody, gave them dual credit, and then just kind of used the unit numbers from the university. And then for the high school, wrote, we wrote a proposal to central office saying, which is in Chicago, Chicago Public Schools. Okay. We just wrote a letter to them saying, okay, well, look, we got these unit numbers at the university. We have... CPS actually has this early college credit course uh, sequence. We can just make this work, register everybody and what have you. And we actually had a supportive uh, dean at the time who was like, yeah, no problem. Like it doesn't, like it's, it's not, it's, it's at minimal cost. Right. And she was even like, look, y'all need books? <laughs> she was yes. like, look, don't. She was like, no, it's like, don't worry. It's like, what, what do you all need? Lay out what you need. Yeah, that's the kind we'll of admin we need. Exactly. Yeah. So she, she figured it out. So big shout out to Selena Simon. She was just like, look, what do y'all, what do y'all need? Okay. We got that all because her thing was, look, we, we haven't been using this thing. Right. Somebody is actually willing to, willing to use it. All right, look, let's just make it happen. Right. So. Which real quick, I just want to say for the for the listening audience, if you're in higher ed and you're and you're thinking about this thing, we already have. I mean, what you're saying is that there were clearly structures in place that were being underutilized because for whatever reason, the institution wasn't valuing those structures. Exactly. And I actually had I remember having a conversation with a couple of folks who were university profs that were teaching at high schools. And I remember sitting down with them and just saying, like, look, y'all. Let's kick this up a thing. Just enroll everybody. Like just just enroll everybody in the class. The structure is already there. And I remember one of my guys, he was like, man, that makes perfect sense. And he just like, yeah, he just and he just enrolled all his students the next year. And then another group of folks, they flipped it in the same way. So that type of work and then even me doing it, 
I was actually borrowing from some stuff that was actually coming out of the 70s. Oh, wow. And then within, uh, then I saw again happen at uh, UCLA. At, at that time, it was called the Institute for Democracy, Education, and okay. Access. It was Jeff Duncan Andrade, um, Ernest Morrell, Jeannie oh, Oaks, yeah. uh, John Rogers. So they were, uh, they were all doing that. They were already doing that work, and they were teamed up with a parent organization called Teaching to Change LA. Okay. So I actually got a chance to go out and rock with them for a little bit and see how they were doing stuff. And then I was just trying to bring that back, uh, bring that back home. Okay. But it was, it was literally just inserting our work into a dormant program, right? right? That was all, all the infrastructure was there. So it was really around just kind of making that happen. I think a lot of times what inhibits folks is people think that they have to do everything from scratch. Yes. But if you take a deeper look, a lot of that stuff is already there, yeah. right? That that dormant network is is there lying. But those things, especially those kind of uh, early college credit courses, are only provided to privileged kids, mm-hmm. right? So now I'm just saying, all right, well, look, what do we actually, if, they, if we understand this work is people's work, right. then what does it mean to bring the folks who have historically been excluded to that same space because we know they can do the work, yeah. but we just don't trust them to do the work. Yeah, absolutely. And so is that, that program that you set up, is that the school you were at when they started closing schools down? Well, that was, it's, it's kind of a, it's a layered story. Okay. So that the school that, uh, that we were at at that time is still open, still okay. running, Okay. but there were a series of closures across the city. So from 2004 to 2014, that's when you get about 90% of your school closures, if not over 90% of your school closures uh, in the last 50 years in Chicago, right? And then in 2013, actually having the largest single set of school closings in the history of the United States, right? So this thing around really being in that moment. So there were all these iterations of school closing. So I was, in addition to being at Social Justice High School, which was a school that was founded by the community members, okay. there were in 2004 before Sojo even opened up. Mm-hmm. There were the series of uh, closures, uh, K-8 closures, then high school closures, and then in 2012, 2013, all those schools that were closed were K-8 schools. Okay. So you know you got all this stuff, you got all this stuff happening, but. These so we were in when we were doing our work at Sojo, we were also in community with people who were trying to keep their schools open. Okay. So when you saw me at ARA, I was probably talking about one of those other schools right. that was in the struggle to stay open. I mean, I'm thinking about. I mean, I'm from California, and so mm-hmm. we hear these things. We hear them from a distance. Right. And I think that's what struck me about you telling that story because as a high school teacher at the time. I was right. thinking, what would it be like to show up to my workplace and have Man. it be shut down? And Man. what would that mean for the trust that I had tried to build with my young people, for all the community that you attempt to build as an educator? Um, and so that's what struck me about that story was it was it was um, it was just so real to me. Young people showing up, teachers showing up and right. then seeing their school is gone. Yeah. I mean, I, when you when you get into that type of work. You know, you think about that. What does it mean you show up and they're building out like 
you know, they're making new lockers, building out this whole new thing. And you're saying to yourself, wait, who is this for? Right. Right. And, and the school's message is, it's not for you. Right. So this, and, and at that time, and it was a really interesting moment because I had friends that taught at the school. I had students that were teaching at the school. And then we were also doing some organizing work with the young folks. Right. So it was all this stuff happening at the same time. Right. And it was like numerous schools. At one time in my classes, I probably had sets of teachers from three different schools that were all closing. Right. So this thing around really kind of putting that in context. And I remember during that time period going to each of their respective schools mm-hmm. and they're, they're trying to figure out, OK, how are we going to fight? How are we, how are we going to how, how are we organizing in this movement? Right. What, are, what are we doing in this space? So this thing around, you know, and these are adults. Right. And they're coming to class, you know, expressing some serious trauma. So I'm only thinking about, like, what are the young folks going right. through this? What's, what's happening to them? And then, ironically, I had one uh, student who was a teacher, ironically, English teacher. Mm-hmm. She brought her students to class to present with her. Oh, wow. And they broke down, they broke down like all of these different forms of closure. Mm. And, I, and everybody in the class, myself included, was just blown away. But they were like, look. You know, we've been here four years right. and we've already seen like four to five different changes. So, yeah. you know, what does it do for our learning? And everybody kind of asked, everybody was asking this question. We're like, damn, you know, these are 16, 17 year olds talking about being under four different administrative changes from their freshman year to their senior year of high school. Wow. Right. So this, this thing around the intensity of the particular moment, right, means a lot. And in Chicago, I think a lot of a lot of stuff that people don't put into context is that we've experienced severe population loss, particularly of Black folks, mm. right? So we've lost almost three hundred thousand Black folks since two since two thousand. So wow. you know, in some That's neighborhoods, you've had neighborhoods to depopulate. So if the neighborhood depopulates then the school will depopulate, right? right? And that was actually before any of these kind of broad-based sets of closures. So it it, it had actually started in the 80s. So now when we're seeing the end result, Mm -hmm. we get school closures. We get this further isolation of certain folks who live in certain communities. Right. So for, for me, like my next thought goes to community organizations, so I'm hearing you say, okay, higher ed's involved, K through 12 public schools are involved. Where are the community orgs? Where Where's the philanthropy in Chicago? Mm-hmm. You know, where are the, the the major name brand sort of members of oh, the right. nonprofit industrial complex? What right. are they doing right. in this right. space? Yeah, it's interesting. The smaller, and this is always the case, and I'm glad you mentioned it as the nonprofit industrial complex, because, you know, philanthropy is in many ways unsustainable. And I think it's important to put that out there. And there are very few people who come into the work understanding the temporary nature of philanthropy. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of folks, and it's, in Chicago, it's a mixed bag because a lot of large foundations have their headquarters here. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we got Spencer, MacArthur, uh, Chicago Community Trust. Mm-hmm. Right. So these are these are very large 
foundations. And it's been interesting. Their work with schools has been kind of flighty, right? They, they don't really engage in schools mm. a lot. Now, there's been some recent work where they've gotten involved. But the smaller foundations that are more community-centered, mm-hmm. they've been the ones that have been more active in schools because they see, they see what's happening and they're taking the perspective of community members deserve to be trusted. Community members deserve to be understood around what's needed. Right. And community folks have a better understanding than any foundation or any program officer right. of what's happening. So how do we lift them up and prioritize their needs? Now, in saying that, your larger foundations, they don't necessarily work like that. But your smaller your smaller organizations, more community-based foundations with smaller um, grant pools or what have you, mm-hmm. they've been the ones who have been solid around that. Now, in terms of education organizing, Community orgs have had it popping here in Chicago in terms of like really being active in terms of making sure that the voices of communities have been heard. I mean, they've actually developed coalitions. They've actually moved in ways that have existed outside of the non-profit industrial complex. Right. So you got, you know, coalitions of organizations that have been doing work. Now, ironically, the nonprofit industrial complex pushed that out in the early 2000s as a type of grant RFP for folks to do do collective work, right? It's it's kind of an interesting piece where folks are like, okay, well, we got this money to do the collective work. And then folks saying, all right, you know what? We don't really need that. Let's do our own thing, but let's do it collectively. So what we've seen at the community organization level is more folks ramping up and doing work. But at the, the large philanthropic organizations, they've kind of been off school. Like they haven't really messed with K-12 a lot. They want to do community-based stuff, but even that is fraught. But there are one example that's, I think, poignant is this uh, of a large organization that actually put their money where their mouth was, Mm -hmm. was the Chicago Teachers Union. And the Chicago Teachers Union in 2010 was actually taken over by a renegade faction called the Caucus of Rank and File Educators. And that was when Karen Lewis became the president. Yes. And they shifted from solely workers' rights to talk about community rights, accountability, and responsibility. So they literally reframed themselves as a justice-centered union, which which changed the game. So now, and, and something that I think about in when they, so when CORE, the Caucus of Rank and File Educators won the election. Mm-hmm. The first thing they did was hire a group of organizers mm. to now begin to field the issues and concerns in local communities. So, that, I mean, it's, it's a really important shift that I sure. think allowed larger philanthropic organizations to understand what was really happening mm. because they the ex- expectation was just the union to be some just benign group right. that's just going to fight every three years for, for a different contract right but they shifted it and they said look we need to understand what communities are hardest hit and we need to prioritize that, those communities that stance was unheard of mm. i mean you know of course there's there's bumps in the road 
But that piece, I think, allowed folks to think about K-12 schooling in a very different way. Yeah. But I, I think those, to your earlier question, yeah, large philanthropy, they they were not checking for schools yeah. at all. Not even and close. Yeah, and, but there was really a ground up strategy that pushed uh, how folks understood um, K-12 schooling and shy. I like that. I like that. I just got this lesson in union organizing, too, because yeah. it also speaks to the power that teachers as a collective have. Um, exactly. Something that I often think is underutilized. Like we have these unions and when you hear about us politically, we supposedly have all of this lobbying power and then we don't do anything with it. Right. right. We put our we always put our support behind a Democrat, even no matter right. how whack that Democrat is. Um, and then we don't do anything. I mean, the fact that you said that that the union itself hired a group of community organizers um, is something that I think teacher unions all over the country need to. But see, we, we see it on the news. We don't hear those portions of the of the battle. Right. And, and it's, a, it's an important exchange because, you know, you see this with UTLA. Right. So UTLA would come to Chicago and, you know, Alex Caputo Pearl, like he when he became the president, he was he him and a delegation of folks used to come to Chicago and actually build and see what was actually happening here. And now they begin to actually establish themselves as a hub for justice-centered organizing on the West Coast, right. right? And then, you know, when West Virginia popped off, and it was a really interesting moment, right? So when West Virginia popped off, Kentucky, Oklahoma, mm -hmm. they all came to Chicago, right? They brought folks to Chicago to talk about what it is that they were doing. And, you know, some of those states, what was really interesting to me was that some of those states are right-to-work states, mm -hmm. right? So where you, where you're not, you're not compelled into a union, right? Like, right. so it's literally, you can opt out and as most teachers do, but then folks saw what was happening and then they figured out, okay, who's doing this work in this particular way? Right. And all those folks came to Chicago. I mean, like my, my comrades in the union, they would, they would be telling me around like all these different folks who would be coming to Chicago. I'm more, I'm more familiar with the UTLA folks. Right. Um, but Everybody was talking about, you know, the West Virginia folks came, the Kentucky folks came, Oklahoma, Arizona. So like this, this thing around really rallying around not just teacher pay right. and working conditions, but to say things like good teaching conditions are optimal learning conditions, right? right? In terms of really putting that in a broader focus. Yeah, absolutely. So I just um, I have a question for you about nonprofits that work inside of schools mm -hmm. um, based on your experiences in schools, what you've seen in particular with the inequity that happens in schools. How do you feel about nonprofits that basically operate inside of schools? They come in mm -hmm. schools, they set up mentoring programs, after school programs, et cetera. Um, and I ask that question because I've often sort of critiqued some of these programs because I mm -hmm. feel like they become an extension of that state apparatus. And then as a byproduct, an extension of the trauma that 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 young people often experience in schools. But but tell me how you see that. What, give me more. Yeah, I think that there are a number of different layers. But first, I think it's important because I agree with you that the majority of those organizations have only a minimal commitment to folks who have to the young people who can demonstrate how compliant they can be. Mm. 
right? There's very little critique of white supremacy, class-based exclusion, mm -hmm. uh, student, um, student alienation, right? There's very little analysis of that, right? There's very little understanding of that. Now, on the flip side of that, you do have some organizations with people who are willing to say, look, what we need to understand is that a lot of this is bullshit. I need yeah. to, what we're trying to do here is have you navigate this bullshit and be able to self-determine and ask critical questions. Okay. So when they come for you, we're going to be there. We're not going to front on you. We're not going to leave you hanging. Now, that group is a lot smaller than folks who have been, because I think it's important to your point, it's important to understand those organizations as market-based industries, mm. right? Because these are folks, because think about what they do, right? They got the mentorship thing, they got the college access thing, right. they got some worker development thing. Most of the times these people are connected with contractors, right? They're connected with companies, they're connected with firms, right? To get their free intern labor, right? So I mean, this whole school's That's developed right. around this, yeah. right? So this thing around really thinking about, are we just re-upping folks to become deeper cogs in the wheel? Right. Or are we really preparing folks to do something different? And I've seen it operate from both those spaces. I've seen the folks who are saying, look, this whole thing around school, in fact, we need to kick it up. Most of school can be bad for you, mm -hmm. right? So now, what is it that we're what are we, what is this that we're doing that allows us to engage education on our own terms, right. right? So I think that that to me is the most critical space, right? Who's willing to step out right. of the compliance of the school right. and now say, okay? Is this a place where education can really happen? And if it is, how do we support that? Because to your point, in the last 15, 20 years, there's been an explosion of these organizations that operate in schools, but not necessarily where they were, where they originated from. So the space was actually made by grassroots community organizations, mm -hmm. right? So you had parent-teacher liaisons, you had, uh, you had a staff from a community organization that actually was on a school campus, yes. but that came from community struggle, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about in New York schools like El Puente Academy for Peace and Justice, El Puente was a community organization. Mm -hmm. Bushwick School of Social Justice, you know, Make the Road by Walking was a community organization that actually was shepherding that, that struggle, right? right. Mothers on the Move, right? All these, all these folks who are actually doing community-based work that then morphed into school-based space. Right. But now the amorphous level of community organization right. gets this weird nomenclature where now, like I said, all your college access folks are coming in, all your homework folks are coming in, all your mentoring folks are coming in, mm -hmm. right? And it's to fill a void but only to one extent, like I, one of the better examples that I saw here in Chicago is an organization called Community Organizing and Family Issues. Okay. And they thought about the school. It was at a place called Spencer Elementary. And the way they thought about it was, I thought, really 
revolutionary, but also very practical. They said, well, look, what is it that community members need? And they talked about a safe place to be, a place where they can engage in some form of recreation, a place where they felt supported. So what do they do? They get up some donations, they secure some money to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner served at the school. They also have a parent education class. They also open the building at six and close it at eight. Oh, wow. So this thing around really, okay. and they had a good, they had a good six, seven year run with this, right? And what we saw was that all of your performance indicators went through the roof, mm-hmm. right? But this thing around trusting people in those spaces, yes. right? I mean, they, they even had a tax, they even had a dude doing taxes for families, right? I mean, I was like, yo, this is what's, this is what's up right. around. Before that, there was another community effort um, in a neighborhood called Humble Park at a school called Moose, where they actually had an operating dentist in the school. Wow. Right. And I was just like, man, like this and just thinking about it in real practical ways that are based on community needs. I think what we get instead is these programmatic efforts Mm -hmm. that come into the school. Right. Not necessarily things that are based in community need. Right. Like this programmatic thing. It's not necessarily bad, but it may not be the specific need in that space. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, so this last summer, I got to go to Ghana with uh, Dr. Mm-hmm. Dillard mm-hmm. and she took us to her school. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in that space, there was grandma, auntie, uncle, dad, DJ, anybody who wanted to be in that space to support those young, young, young folks could be in that space. Um, and I just remember thinking this would never happen. I mean, unless there was, you know, some sort of after school performance or a PTA mm-hmm. meeting. Right. We lock schools up right. and no one can come in. And this is this it's, it's, it's an exclusive elite space right. that is not at all open to community, but community is all over the language that we speak. <laughs> right. right. When we right. send things out, it's all about community and we want to be an open space. Uh, but the idea of having taxes and a dentist. <laughs> right. Right. Never seen it. Yeah. And that, that thing around, like when you think about it in that way, it's also to say, like when you, think about community need, Mm -hmm. it's going to look different, right? Because like when you were saying like schools either become, schools either become elite spaces or they become carceral, Mm. right? And and there's no, there's no in between in that, right? There's, it's literally, they become spaces that are accessible, that folks can actually get needs met and support in turn, or they're carceral, right? right. They're, they're, they're these heavy carcerate, carceral spaces, right? Where you are reminded at every step mm. that nah, you, you're not necessarily in a schoolhouse, but this place is to remind you that you're in prison, yeah. Yeah. right? So this hence the you know the school prison nexus, right? So it's, we're not talking about a place that leads you to prison, right. but in all for all intents and purposes, they operate as a prison, mm-hmm. right? So this thing around really thinking about the ways in which we shift that and start to think about community need, right? And, you know, there's all these examples, right? The, the citizenship schools of Porto Alegre, Brazil, right? Funds and knowledge with Luis Mole and Leticia Gonzalez out in Tucson, right? This whole thing around trusting community members, right? Because just like 
just like Doc Dillard School in Ghana, you know, when you go to Porto Alegre, they used to have schools where you know you had groupings, you had age groupings of young people and and older folks from five all the way to eighty, right? And yes. you know, there was it was the one of the this guy named Yvonne de Martin Martins. He came to Chicago and he was like, you know, we had this one uh, situation where the young people created a play. It was like kindergartners created this play and then they taught it to their grandparents and then their grandparents performed it. Oh, wow. And I was just like, yo, this is a whole different, I mean, but it's an entirely different way of thinking, right? right? In terms of saying, okay, if the folks who have been the most marginalized are now the most trusted, Mm -hmm. what does our learning look like? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Man, okay, see, I knew this was going to happen when I talked to you. I got, I have so many thoughts mm-hmm. <laughs> in my head right now. So the work that you're doing, the work that you're talking about, tell us how that helps the field in general begin to reimagine youth work and what it looks like. I mean, I think there are two, there are two pieces I always think about, right? So there's K-12 education and then there's kind of youth development. Yes. And it's really important to me because like youth development is really interesting because a lot of the folks who do youth development work, when you go back and do the history, all of the, the, the kind of baseline work or foundation work in youth development was based on white kids in the suburbs, mm-hmm. right? So people were just like, look, y'all, this has nothing to do with what we're, what we're on and how we're trying to get down. Right. And I think for me, it's having a foot on the ground or feet on the ground is really an important interruption to say, look, everybody, we need to rethink what we're doing. We're still talking about research subjects. We're still talking about this colonial project of research, right? right? And opposed to flipping it and say, well, what does participatory action research look like? What does justice-centered research look like? I think it's an important intervention because we need to interrupt the colonial project in higher education, right? I mean, it continues to victimize folks and the colonial, and not just this kind of colonial project and not this whole uh, treatise on coloniality, but really of white supremacy, right? Right. To really understand when the views, the the assumed views and values of white, able-bodied, cisgendered, heterosexual, Protestant men Mm -hmm. are rationalized as normal, right, and good, and everything else is held up to this false standard, right? So this thing around really interrogating that, I think doing work on the ground allows for us to interrogate that, not for the validation of the academy, right. but to interrupt what the academy has historically done to mm-hmm. us. Man, so if I'm a community organization, then how do I, how do, I do education? Mm-hmm. without replicating schools. Yep. And if I think the main thing, if you're partnered up with anybody, there has to be the terms and conditions of accountability, right? Not terms and conditions, right? Not just the moratorium of understanding, right? right? But literally saying, how will we demonstrate our accountability to each other? And when will we do that? How frequently will we do that? What does it mean to all parties involved? Right. Right. Asking a different set of questions. Right. Because that thing, I think, is the key piece. Right. Schools have not done right 
historically by oppressed peoples. Mm -hmm. But you do have instances where people have made the decision and have forced those institutions to respond to the particular needs. Mm -hmm. I think that's where the work needs to go. So for community organizations, you know, it's one thing that somebody's talking slick, they got a ton of money and they want to come and do something with your youth. Right. To me, I always look at that. That's the first red flag because the first thing is they're doing something to your youth. Mm -hmm. And when that money runs out, they're up. Right. So this thing around really saying, well, what what is the good question to ask folks? Right. For so for community organizations to ask researchers and folks in higher ed is, okay, what are you committed to do when the money runs out? Mm Right. What so so how what, what are the terms and conditions here? How long are you going to be here? Right. Right. So this thing around really teasing that out. And I, I got a colleague named uh Jennifer Hebert Byrne, and she always talks about that. She's like, Look, I'm a white woman working with in Latinx communities, mm-hmm. understanding that how they see me first is a rep of the university mm-hmm. that has perpetually done them wrong. How do I interrupt that in my practice? Right. Right. So I think for community orgs, it's really important to hold folks to those to that accountability, because that way you are clear about what you're trying to do. Right. right? So no handshake agreements, no smile agreements. All that stuff needs to be articulated and written down. Right. Right. Because when they when it's not. That's when we we make windows for all the mess to start to happen. Right. You know, it's I'm I'm hearing in your uh, I'm hearing a nuanced definition of community orgs on your part, Mm because when you're saying community orgs, you're talking about community. Mm -hmm. And I would argue uh, maybe not on my behalf, but I would argue that uh, some folks, the bigger nonprofits who again, our members of the nonprofit industrial complex, they, they name it, they list themselves as community orgs too. Right. And it's a slick, it's a slick delineation. Right. Mm-hmm. And it goes. So like our, the example I always think about the United Nations has a classification of what they refer to as a CBL, right? A CBO, right? right. right? Which is a community based organization. Right. Right. That's not necessarily meaning from that space. Right. It just means that it does particular work in a community. That's it. Right. So it could be all types of nefarious stuff happening. Right. But that classification allows those folks who are really into market based economies right. doing work in communities to be in those spaces. Because I, I don't know if you remember this. So like, you know, the early 2000s, I remember there was an explosion in colleges that were offering degrees mm. in what they referred to as nonprofit management. Yes. Right. And I'm just like, OK, there it is. Yeah. Right. It's, it's not just this validation, but it's also entering market based work. Right. Into community organizations. Right. Right. And that thing around really. So once that neoliberal uh, ideology around the market will solve all things mm-hmm. comes into the gate, then people are now looking at these organizations really as lo-fi businesses, mm-hmm. right? And and the university is has been victimized in that way too because they've always operated in terms of 
this business aspect in terms of raising endowment, right? right? So this thing around how this stuff is structured and now when it's seeped into community-based organizations um, in the early 2000s by way of degree attainment, right? I knew that it would it would shift a lot, yeah. which it has. Yeah. And this for me, this raises a lot of issues because you have folks and I count myself, you know, that I've been running a nonprofit organization since 10 since 2007. Um, it's been rough. Like I just posted, mm-hmm. you know, a study about philanthropy not funding folks of color at the same rate that they fo- that they fund our white counterparts. And I, I think it's because I'm a leader of color, but I also think it's because the work I'm doing is radical. It's so much Mm -hmm. harder to get funded Mm -hmm. um, when you're a a real community organization on the ground actually doing work. They don't want to give us anything, right? And so that that raises this other question about, and you mentioned it earlier about how philanthropy is not the answer, um, Mm -hmm. or at least the long-term answer, right? Mm -hmm. How do we start, how do folks like me um, start start getting funds? Um, You know, how do we collectively bring enough funding in to deal with these things that we know, you know, really when you think about the money that needs to be attached to get these things done, you know, Mm -hmm. how do we start building collectively to, to be on the same par, you know, as because we need that same money to do the work that we're doing. Right. And I think there's, there are a couple of things and I go in a different direction, maybe a little bit. Mm -hmm. And this is what I mean. I think because of the unsustainability of philanthropic giving, we have to figure out ways to support each other, right? So I think about, there's an organization in Rhode Island called AS220, which is an art-based organization. And what they did, I thought was really important. They decided that, because it was an arts program for folks who were in Rhode Island's Department of Child and Family Services. Mm -hmm. So it was a group of social workers and a couple of artists. And they were saying, okay, look, we're we're gonna use our our work with folks, okay? And the money that we have in surplus, and I thought this was genius. Mm -hmm. The money that they had in surplus, they bought land, Mm -hmm. right? And then then they started to buy out land, they started to buy out these buildings and then the money that they got from a contract from the state mm-hmm. allowed them to refurbish the buildings. Okay. Then they bought this big building and they had that has an artist residence, residency, a wow. dance studio, performance space, and a restaurant. Oh, wow. right? everything. So, so, they, so everything, right? So they build this thing out and in their administrative structure, Every person from the ED down to the entry-level worker has the exact same salary. Wow. Right? So this thing yeah. around really, and, and like I said, it, it, it was, it's thinking about things differently, right. right? Or if we think about the stuff that's happening in Jackson, Mississippi, right, with Act- Operation Jackson, where here were folks who were literally going around and saying a people's-based movement now has to keep government accountable. So the person who we run as a candidate will come from us. Mm. Right. So that's how you get Chokwe Lumumba being elected and then his son after his passing. Right. right? So now the idea and they did 
what they refer to as citizens' assemblies, which they got from the Zapatistas, mm. right? So this thing around really understanding, and Kali Akuno actually uh, wrote a book about Operation Jackson. So it just came out a couple of years ago. So this thing around really thinking about our work differently, right? Mm. Because if we start with the baseline, that philanthropic giving is unsustainable. Right. What models are we now willing to entertain right. to now get us the resources that we need? Right. Right. And I, and I think that's really important. And it is, you know, like I said, it's a fledgling effort, but it's something that I think we have to begin to think about. So it's like this thing around, you know, what folks used to refer to as worker cooperatives, mm -hmm. right? Or living cooperatives, right? We have to think. You have to think, or community land trust, right. right? These are ways to think about community-based ownership of what it is that we're trying to do, right. right? I think that really becomes important because to your point, I don't ever think about our work as having to validate it to anyone, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? People has, have expressed a need for it to happen. That is more than enough. Yeah. So now what are we willing to do given that reality? Yeah. Right. So I, I think those things around really thinking about that differently um, is important. And a lot of those things aren't necessarily monetary. Right. So it's, there's there's really collective ways of sharing resources mm -hmm. uh, that I think are important that folks like Operation Jackson and AS220 uh, actually provide uh, models for doing right. so those really kind of thinking about that in terms of what are the baseline issue being that philanthropic giving uh, is not something that we should, we should be depending on. Absolutely. So you dropped a lot of gems. I've got, um, it's to value your time. I've got one more question. Mm -hmm. And the, the final question I've been asking this of, of all of the interviewees in your freedom dream, what does the future of youth work look like? a space where young people are determined the direction, right? So it's not just a bunch of us as adults who are coming in and saying, hey, here's this thing I got for y'all, right? <laughs> What's wrong with y'all, right? <laughs> pull, pull your pants up, right? Sure. You know what I'm saying? I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not attuned to that. My thing is the freedom dream is to say, we have provided a lens and a practice for young folks to build what they see is necessary and right and what they can pass on to the folks who come on, who come behind them. Right. So this thing around we we're just we're facilitators and we're providing tools that young folks can use to self-determine. Right. So that that's the that to me, that is my that is my freedom dream. Absolutely. That is beautiful. Thank you so much for just talking to me for dropping all of these gems. It's been amazing to hear all the work that you've been doing. And I know that this, this conversation is going to be very helpful to folks on the ground who are really trying to engage in meaningful work. Y'all, we have been listening to Dr. David Stovall from the University of Illinois in Chicago. He dropped a lot of information. So I'm going to go back through this podcast very carefully, make sure I give you links uh, to everything that I can find and um, y'all keep working. Y'all keep working out there.